For our scripture reading this morning, we're reading once again Galatians chapter 5. We're going to read the entire text again. It's a little lengthy, so I'll go ahead and read it as you follow along on the board this morning. Beginning in verse 16. It says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, once again, we come before you bowing the knees of our hearts to the authority, to the trustworthiness and faithfulness of your word. Father, I pray that as we have sung this morning that you are our rock and redeemer, you are the source of our life, you are the joy of our hearts, you became sin that we would know no sin. Lord, you have done all of this for us. You have forgiven us of all the things that are even listed in this passage. That all of us are guilty of some. You have forgiven them all. And Lord, you are restoring us to the image of Christ of which we have a portrait through these fruits that the Spirit gives us. Lord, you had all of these things. You had love. You had gentleness. You had self-control when Satan tempted you. You had joy and peace and patience. You were good and faithful. Lord, all of these things you are. And if we would be like you, we must have these things as well. And so you have worked these into our hearts through your indwelling spirit. And now, Lord, as uh, we go through them today, I pray that you would use this time to cultivate them and teach us how to cultivate them through your word. Lord, we love you. And like, again, we pray that you would open our ears and hearts to hear your word, hear your spirit. Lord, help me to faithfully explain your text this morning so that we may have a greater Christ-likeness when we leave. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Last week we began studying the fruits of the Spirit. Didn't get very far. And so this morning we're going to go ahead and just continue with what we started last week. And just to remind you of a, of a couple of things that 
we, we talked about last week is that the fundamental issue of the Christian life is spiritual maturity, that we grow to be like Christ. In fact, uh, there are several passages where Paul talks about, you know, everybody's uh, talking about predestination and all this. Christ, uh, Paul tells us what we're predestined for is to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We are conformed to be like Christ. We are made to be like Christ. And that is our purpose in this world. You're looking for a purpose-driven life. There it is, to be like Christ and to reflect him in this world and to thus give glory to the God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the fundamental issue of this book is how do we do that? Do we do it by keeping external law or do we do it by the change that is brought about through our justification, uh, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone? And obviously the, que- the answer is that we must, uh, we come to God, we come to Jesus Christ through nothing other but faith alone. And that that is sufficient for our salvation. And not only is it sufficient for our salvation, it is also sufficient for our sanctification. It is sufficient. It is what we build on. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, let no man build on another foundation other than what we, that has already been laid. And that is that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He is the grounding. He is the foundation of all, everything that we do that gives glory to God in the Christian life. Not just any change will do. Not just any change will do. Listen, we can give you a whole bunch of rules. We can give you a whole bunch of traditions. We can give you a whole bunch of customs and we can set up a system of punishments and rewards so that you will learn through behavioral modification, you will learn to look good when you come to church, right? You'll learn to look good in the world. All we've accomplished is we've put you on a higher deck in the Titanic. The boat's still going under. You gotta get on a new boat, You need to get on the Carpathia. You need to get on uh, whatever other boat might have been floating at the time. And so there has to be a change of nature. There has to be a spiritual resurrection. There has to be a, a life coming from death, a new creation that only comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet once it does we find out that we are not completely passive in sanctification, that there is both a will and a strength to do his will that is given to us by God, which gives us a responsibility to live out the Christian faith. It's not a putting a down payment by faith and then working to keep your salvation. That's not what it is. However, what it is, is that in, we, in salvation, the fruit of that salvation, the maturity of that salvation begins to work itself out in our lives. We are changing externally because we are changed internally through grateful and loving obedience. We're responding to God in love, not out of fear. And so that's, and the question is, what does that look like? What does it look like? You know, you, sometimes you have to get kind of a mental image in your head to kind of see where you're going. And so that's what Paul's giving us in these passages. That's what Paul's giving us in this portrait of spiritual maturity. 
You may remember last week that we talked about how, you know, there's a very clear contrast between the deeds of the flesh, that it was plural, and the fruit of the Spirit, which is singular. And we said that while all of us have done some of the deeds of the flesh, none of us have done all of them, right? And yet the fruit is singular in that every believer in Jesus Christ should have these things, all of these things, working themselves out inside of us. They are both a work of the Lord and they are also something that is cultivated by the believer. And so we should have this, the evidence of our faith, the the proof of our faith is not looking at a Bible we signed, you know, some 30 years ago or something like that, or remembering when we walked down the aisle or remembering what we felt when we prayed the prayer. The proof of salvation is that we are bearing fruit, is that there is fruit being born in our lives. That is the proof of salvation. Jesus says that this glorifies my father that you bear fruit and thus prove to be my disciples. You will know them by their fruits. And so we looked at all of that last week. And so this week, what we want to look at, we looked at the means of the harvest, that it is both a work of God, but it is also cultivated by us. Now we're not talking about justification here. We're talking about sanctification. Two very different things. And while they're vitally connected to one another, they are very different. And we've got to keep them differentiated in our minds. We don't want to sever them completely from one another and come up with some idea where you, you know, you accept Jesus as Lord. And then 20 years later, you can, or excuse me, you accept Jesus as Savior and there's no fruit whatsoever. And then, you know, 20 years later, you make him your Lord. And that's when the change comes. We don't, we don't want to sever justification from sanctification. We don't want to do that, but we don't want to confuse them either because that's just as dangerous. And so want, they are vitally connected, but they are different. So we're not talking about sanctification here. Sanctification, we do have responsibility. We do have expectations and there are things that God tells us to do. And what we find here is that in these fruits, they are both a work of God. And we saw that the New Testament has a corresponding command to each and every one of them. And we saw that last week. So that's a little more of an introduction that I wanted to give. So the first thing that we looked at last week was the means of the harvest But this week, we want to look at the actual fruit of the harvest, the fruit of the harvest. And that is what we know as the fruit of the Spirit. You may remember last week that one way to understand the word fruit, uh, one way that it can be translated and and probably better understood here is to think of it in terms of a harvest, that, that this is the harvest that God is working in our lives. And what a harvest it is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And I pray that every one of us is maybe taking a spiritual stock in our lives. We're, We're taking spiritual inventory and asking ourselves throughout this study, we're asking ourselves, how am I seeing these things working themselves out in my life? Most of them are fairly self-explanatory, although some of them do require a little nuancing. And so we're going to look at that this morning. So Paul lists nine virtues here, nine characteristics that every Christian should be displaying in their lives. Are we going to do it perfectly? Of course not. We're still contending with the flesh. But 
These are things that we should be seeing cultivated in our lives. And a lot of people have tried to categorize them. You know, some people have tried to put them in groups of three, you know, preachers into threes. And so, uh, so um, some people have tried to categorize them in a group of three. For example, the great and wonderful John R. Stott, who uh, pastored All Souls Church for many years in London. He said that the first three are towards God. The second three are toward others. And the third three are inward. They're toward self. Um, I have much respect for John R. Stott, mainly because everybody always confuses me for him. Uh, whenever I was studying, uh, preach, whenever I was in seminary, uh, I had to read one of his books, um, um, Between Two Worlds, which is a wonderful book for anyone who wants to be a preacher. But, uh, but I had it sitting on the table and Kaylin comes in and uh, she looks at it and she saw John R. Stott there and she said, Dad, I didn't know you wrote a book. I said, not everybody's got a dad like you do, sweetie. So, <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, um, I have a lot of respect for um, Dr. Scott. He's with the Lord now, but um, I just don't, I don't think you can categorize them that neatly here. I really don't. Some will say that all of these, that love is really the main one and that all the rest of them are really just outworking of love. And that's, that's possible. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to deny that. Um, but regardless, it's still worth our time to look at all of them individually. So here we go. Number one, love. There's so much that could be said here. So much that could be said in so little time. But love is the supreme characteristic of a child of God. Love for God, love for others. It is the two greatest commandments that God has given. It is, it is that we must love God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our mind, all of our strength. That is to say, our entire being, our entire essence, our entire selves. And we are to love others as ourself. You know, people have done some funny things with that command that this kind of pop psychology today will jump in and say, well, you know, it says to love God, others as yourself. Well, in order to do that, you've got to love yourself. So there's an implied third command here. And what they do is that they actually take the implied third command and make it the basis of the two other stated commands that in order to love God, in order to, in order to love others, you've, you've really got to love yourself. Don't fall for that. There is, I mean, Jesus says the, the second command, there, there is no implied third command there. The assumption is that we love ourselves. The assumption is that we do. Even when we don't have good self-esteem, you could say, what is that? All that is, is that others don't look at us the way that we think they ought to. So that's still an expression of self-love, is it not? And so the assumption is that we love ourselves. Loving ourselves is not the answer. It's the problem. And so God says that the two greatest commands is that we must love God and love others as we love ourselves. It is the supreme Christian virtue and it comes out of God's love for us. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 14, I don't have any of these verses, by the way, so you might wanna write down the references. 1 Corinthians 5, 14, Paul says, the love of Christ controls us. We love because God first loved us. Our love 
is the working out of God's love in us. So that is love. Joy. Joy. And this is more than the joy of the culture. This is more than the joy of the world or culture's happiness. Today, we, we've been hearing a lot about how we have uh, certain and unalienable rights and among them is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? But we're not talking about happiness here. Uh, theologians for years now have made a distinction between what the culture says is happiness and the joy that the Bible was talking about in the scriptures, that the joy that comes from God, true biblical joy is deeply felt. It is, it, is, it is deeper than any of our circumstances and deeper than anyone else can reach. It is a joy that is felt in the deepest part of our souls. It is found in our heart of hearts. It comes from God and it cannot be taken away from us, from any circumstances or anything that's going on. Now that doesn't mean that Christians don't have things like bad days and, and all of those things. No, it doesn't mean that. It's not something that we are kind of fooling ourselves and conjuring up, but it is something that is deeply felt that even on the worst of days, we still have an internal joy that is keeping us going. You know, you may have talked to someone or maybe you've experienced some great um, difficult situation in your life and, and you've heard people say that really that the only thing getting me through this is the fact that I have Christ. And, and really what they're referring to is that deep-seated joy that God has given them, that even in the most difficult of circumstances, they still have that joy. Even if they can't necessarily, even if it's not really on the surface at the moment, it's still the source of their strength. What does the psalmist say? The joy of the Lord will be my strength. That's what gets us through. It's what, it's what causes us to go on. And there are no circumstances that can take that away. And I want you to see this. First uh, John chapter one, verses one through four, John is, is overviewing the gospel. He is overviewing the things that they said and the things that they uh, touched with their hands and saw with their eyes and looked and, and uh, concerning the word of life, that the life was manifested and they saw and testify. And in verse four, what does John say? These things we're writing to you, why? So that our joy may be complete. The fullness of joy, the completeness of joy doesn't come from circumstances, but it only comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why so many people always think the grass is greener if they go somewhere else. That's why so many people think that, oh, if I could just be married. Oh, if I could just be single. Oh, if I just had that person. Oh, if I just had this. Oh, if I just had that job. Oh, if my boss would just get out of my hair. Oh, if this, oh, if that. Fact of the matter is, contentment and joy comes from the Lord. And if you don't have that, the grass is always going to be greener somewhere else. It's always going to be somewhere else. The joy that comes from the Lord, the joy that is promised, is felt from deep within. First Peter chapter 1, verse 8. And by the way, this is a passage that I often read with those who are suffering in the hospital. 
Now, I won't read the entire passage, but verse 3 through 10 is amazing. But just look at verse 8. It says, though you have not seen Christ, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Even though you do not see Christ now, you, you love him. And out of that love for him, he, he cultivates joy in your life. Joy that is inexpressible. Joy that is, that is unexplainable. Even in the hardest of times, that's how the martyrs could sing as they were being burned at the stake. That's why the martyrs could sing hymns and rejoice as they were being thrown in the rivers for their quote-unquote second baptism. That's why even to this day, you will find Christians who are being persecuted and they will sing for joy as they languish in prison and Chinese concentration camps and, and even having their heads severed on the internet live. but it's a joy that's inexpressible, full of glory. That's how the, that's how the Roman Christians, when they were, when, as they were being eaten by lions, they would, they, would not, they would just stand in the middle of the arena in groups of four or five and pray together as the lion would come and kill them. It's joy inexpressible. Romans chapter 14, verse 17 says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. That's the verse we should put above our potluck sometimes. Uh, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. In other words, it doesn't depend on our circumstances. It doesn't depend on our pleasures. It doesn't depend on what we're doing, but righteousness and peace and joy. Where? In the Holy Spirit. And so it is a joy that is deep-seated, joy in the Holy Spirit. Peace. Jesus himself is our Prince of Peace. In fact, looking at the Christmas season, in Luke uh, chapter 2, when the angels are announcing the birth of Christ, what do they say? Verse 14, glory to God in the highest and peace and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Beloved, that, that verse is not just kind of a generic platitude on a Hallmark card, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. No, it's, it's specific, peace on earth. Those who have peace will be those with whom God is pleased through the work of Jesus Christ. That, that same word pleased there is the same word that when Christ came out of the baptismal waters, God the Father said, this is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. And if you want God to be pleased with you, if you want peace with God, you must be in the son with whom God is pleased. And so our, he is our prince of peace. He is our righteousness. He is our joy. He is, excuse me, our prince of peace. John 14, 27 says, peace I leave with you. This is Jesus talking. Peace I leave with you. And whose peace? My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled and do not 
fear. Beloved, as a Christian, there is nothing to fear. No government, no draconian restrictions, no persecution, no virus. There is nothing to fear in Christ. And again, don't be stupid, be responsible. But don't fear. Peace, God leaves with us. You know, every election we see a a departure of peace. And so often that is expressed in the churches that uh, Christians who will go out. I I remember one Christian leader said that if a certain person uh, doesn't get reelected, then it will destroy the church. It will take away everything that the church has worked for. I don't know what that religious leader thought he was talking about, but he doesn't know anything about the church. Because first of all, we did not work for the church. Jesus did. And second of all, our peace does not depend on an election. Amen? I don't care who's the president. It doesn't change anything I'm going to do. I'm going to keep worshiping my God. If he tells me no, guess what? Going to do it anyway. And so... We obey God rather than men, and we can do that because we have peace. We don't need to be anxious for anything. Uh, Philippians chapter, chapter 4, which I know for a few of you, this is one of your favorite passages. It's all about peace. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, watch this, which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. Verse nine, and the things that, and, and again, this is, not, this is a work of God in us, but it's also something we cultivate in verse nine. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. It's tranquility. It's, it's knowing where everything is where it ought to be. Isn't that a great feeling? One of, I'm married to one of the most organized persons in the world that I know. Her motto in life is everything in its pl- every, a place for everything and everything in its place, right? I am like chaos on wheels or on feet. I, if I can't see it, it doesn't exist, right? <laughs> I'm kind of embarrassed for you guys to see my study sometimes because it's a total mess, right? That's what, that's what peace is. It's everything is in its place. And beloved, when you know that God is sovereign, when you know that he is in control, and when you know that he has gracefully saved you through the blood of Jesus Christ, you know, everything that happens in this world is not outside of his loving design to make you more like Jesus Christ. And there's a peace in that. There's a peace in that. Even in the greatest, greatest tragedies, there is peace. And that really leads to patience. Patience, which is uh, really calm in the face of misfortune. A going joke in our college ministry used to be, don't ever pray for patience because God might just answer your prayers. That's a, that's a good design. I, 
I had prayed for patience at one point. I ended up getting stranded in a snowstorm in Malvern, Arkansas for two days. You remember, I think it was like uh, 2000, it was March. This freak snowstorm came all over South Arkansas. It was like four feet or something. And, and uh, anyway, yeah, don't ever pray for patience. But we should be cultivating it. And, and really, what the, really what the word patience here is talking about is calm in the face of adversity. Whenever, that, whenever there is adversity, whether there's someone who's just kind of pushing your buttons or whether it's something more serious that someone is sinning against you or wronging you or whether they are even persecuting you or whatever it is, there is a calm that you are not short-tempered. In fact, if, there was, if English had a word long-tempered, that would actually be a pretty good translation of this word. Because it's really the it's really the ap, it's really the opposite of being short tempered. It's slow to anger, just as our God is. In fact, in some languages, it's interesting. Some languages would express this way if you read some of the older translations of the New Testament, Syriac, and some of those others. They actually express it this way: to remain seated in your heart. Man, what a, what a wonderful way to picture that, to, to be seated in your heart, to be calm, to be secure in your heart, no matter what adversities may be coming, to be patient when wronged. God is so patient with us, isn't he? Let me ask you a question. How many of you have confessed every single sin that you have ever committed? How many of us even know what sins we have ever committed? And yet God is so patient with us that even when we fail to confess, he is still patient. He doesn't doesn't give us what we deserve. He covers our wrong in the blood of Jesus Christ. When I was a younger Christian, I thought I, and, and, and you still want to confess all known sin, but I would literally just rack my brain trying to remember every single sin I did so that I could confess it and get right. Beloved, that's not the gospel. Yes, we confess all known sin out of love for God, but the truth is he has covered our sins in the blood of Jesus Christ and we have peace because he is patient with us. First Peter, I love First Peter chapter two, verses 21 and 23, talking about Christ as our example. He says, for you have been called to this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. You see, patience is the fruit of entrusting yourself to the God who judges righteously. That's why it's a spiritual fruit. That when we are wronged, we are patient because we know that God is the righteous judge, not us. Not us. I need to move on. Kindness. Kindness. This is talking about being helpful, just being generally beneficial for others. Mimicking God's kindness towards sinners. 
God, uh, Jesus says that if you want to be like your father, what does he do? He causes it to rain on both the just and the unjust. He is, he is kind to all. He is kind to all. His, his kindness, you say, well, what about lost people? Who's gonna judge them? The fact that they are living and breathing right now is an evidence of God's kindness. The fact that he does not judge them right away the fact that at their very first sin as a toddler does not, does not immediately take them into the wrath of God is a, is a evidence of his kindness towards sinners. Can you imagine if God was like that? The very first, very first thing, boom, you're out. Can you imagine that? I mean, what would be the point at that point, right? And yet, how many Christians are walking around doing that to people? Pass or fail, in or out, one wrong, boom, you're done. How many Christians are doing that to each other, right? We gotta stop that. We gotta reflect the kindness of our God. Even when wrong, we remember that we are always the greater sinner. It's the log in our eye that we need to be most concerned about. And even when we confront sin, we do so from the perspective that we are the greater sinner. That's, what, that's the whole difference between the log and the speck. It makes a huge difference when we approach people in humility versus a judgmental attitude. Slow to anger as God is to us. Kindness and, gen- uh, excuse me, goodness. Goodness. This is really an act of kindness. This is active concern for others. It's mimicking God's goodness toward others, being willing to be a source of good for other people. In fact, really, the, the term is translated in other places generosity, generous, being generous to others. Providing, uh, providing uh, being beneficial to others as an act of kindness, self-giving, self-sacrificing, willing to give of ourselves so that others will have good in their lives. Self-giving, self-sacrificial, goodness, kindness, all of these things. It's generosity, it's it's active concern. What does James say? He says that if you see someone who is, who is cold and hungry and you say, be warmed and filled, and then you walk on and you don't actually provide him what he needs for the body, what good is that? It's not good at all. It's not good for anything. And so don't do that. But instead, love is active. It's, it's acts of kindness, acts of goodness toward others, an active, an active concern for their well-being and wanting to be a blessing to them. I was uh, eating somewhere. I don't remember where it was. It was in LA. It was when I went to the Shepherd's Conference one time and, and uh, I was sitting in a restaurant eating and I had my Shepherd's Conference tag on. So, so everybody could see that I was there for MacArthur's <laughs> seminar, which can either get you uh, a lot of conversation or get you a lot of insults, depending on uh, where you are in the city, especially now. But, um, but anyway, uh, I was, um, I, I was uh, just sitting there and I, I noticed that my meal, had, my, my ticket hadn't come, my, my bill hadn't come. So I asked the waiter, I said, where, hey, um, I, was, I was needing to get back to the church um, can I get my bill, please? And she says, well, 
uh, that gentleman over there and she pointed at some random guy. She said, he actually covered your bill. I didn't know who this person was. And so I, I kind of, you know, I walked over to him. I said, hey, thank you. I, uh, can I ask you, you know, do I, do I know you? Have, have we met before? He said, no. He said, but I'm, I'm a member at Grace Community and I noticed you had your Shepherds Conference tag on. I just want to be a blessing to you. That was it. Just, just you know, stuff like that. Being, being good for others for no other reason than just to be good. Just to be good, you know, little small acts of kindness can go a long way and they can really make the difference in someone's day. They really can. Uh, my goodness, I've got to hurry. Okay, so faithfulness. Faithfulness. Really the idea here is, is loyalty, trustworthiness, faithfulness. Uh, Colossians chapter one, verse seven. Again, I don't expect you to turn to all these passages. You might want to write them down and kind of look them up this afternoon. But Colossians chapter one, verse seven, Epaphras uh, was commended for being a faithful servant of Christ on, on the Colossians' behalf, just as you've learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bond servant, a faithful servant. It's talking about uh, being, it's, it's talking about loyalty. Uh, and, and really, if you think about it, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter four, you definitely want to look at this later on today. That the one thing that is expected of stewards, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. That's how we are to uh, regard the church, that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. We are servants of Christ. And what is required of stewards? What is required of servants? In verse two, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. One be found faithful. It's the same word. And that's why Paul says in verse three, but to me is a very small thing that I may be examined by you <coughs> or by any human court. Boy, that's uh, applicable right now, isn't it? I'm so thankful that the Supreme Court has finally come out and said, hey, you don't get a pass on the Constitution just because there's a health crisis. You can't tell people what, what they can worship and what they can do in worship just because there's a health crisis. I, I do appreciate that, but the, regardless of the fact, I don't care what the Supreme Court says because my first responsibility, my only responsibility for the church and as Christians is that we be found faithful is that we be found doing what God says. Loyalty is, is the idea here. Matthew, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You either love one or hate the other. You cannot serve God and serve money or anything physical for that matter. Truth is, every one of us will be loyal to something. And the question is, who are we loyal to? Are we loyal to God or are we loyal to someone else or something else? Faithfulness is required. And God is the number one that we are to be faithful to. Beloved, if you're willing to sin against God to be faithful to your wife, that's a problem. Beloved, if you're willing to sin against God in order to be loyal to a friend, that's a problem. And by the way, and, and, I'm, and, I, and I know there's exigent circumstances right now and, I, and I'm not trying to condemn anyone. But the number one way we show our loyalty to Christ is by coming to worship him on his day. 
We worship him when he tells us and how he tells us to worship him. Paul, uh, whenever Ananias and Sapphira came and said, uh, we're giving you everything that we got, and Paul, or excuse me, Peter, always do that. Peter says, you haven't lied to me. You haven't lied to the church. Who have you lied to? You've lied to God. You've lied to the Spirit. Beloved, what we do to the church, we're doing to God. When Paul was on the road to Damascus at his conversion, what did Jesus say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? No, he didn't say that. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What we do to the church, how we treat the church, is how we treat Christ. So we want to be, we want to be faithful to God. Gentleness. And I'm just going to say this very quickly. We need to hurry. Three ways this is usually used. Submissiveness to God and his will. See that in Colossians. Consideration of others. Gentleness is consideration of others sometimes in the word. And and it's also being teachable. It's also being teachable. Recognizing that we don't know all the answers. Listen, I stand before you. I don't know all the answers. I don't I don't know everything. That's why I need to be teachable. That's why we all need to be teachable. Gentleness, teachable is an expression of gentleness. And then finally, self-control, which is restraining our passions and attitudes, aptitudes, appetites. I'll get there in a minute. Restraining our passions and appetites, inability to be moved by events or by others, self-control. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I want you to see what he says in Galatians. We've, we've taken a really long journey through this this morning, and, and I'm just about done. Look what he says here. In verse 23, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. Beloved, Paul says that if you are characterized by these things, then you are truly free in Jesus Christ. There is no law against you. The law doesn't apply to you because there is no law against these things. When we talk about walking by the Spirit, when we talk about being filled by the Spirit, this is what it looks like. Beloved, when you are filled with the Spirit, you do not act like you're being possessed by a demon. I see people doing things in the name of the Spirit today that just absolutely grieve me. You don't go flipping around on the ground acting like you're, like you're having a react, withdrawals from drugs or overdose or something. You don't act like an animal. You certainly don't act like a demon-possessed person. When you are truly filled with the Holy Spirit, you act like Jesus Christ. That's what you act like. You want to know whether you're being filled with the Spirit? How much like Jesus Christ are you? Now, according to that standard, we would all despair, right? Well, of course we would. There's always room to grow. But, but, we are being grown. We are moving in that direction. The, and the question is not, are you perfect? The question is, have you cultivated these things more this year than you did last year? 
Can you point to specific examples? Are you, are you, are you growing in these things? That, that's the question. And then one day when Christ takes us to heaven and we are glorified, we will be perfected. But for now, we are growing in these things, growing in the filling of the Spirit. That's all I have time for this morning. In fact, I'm kind of over. But what I want to leave you with is this. First of all, do you want peace in your... uh, Put that back up real quick, Uh, Mark. I I want to throw that up there just one more time. Do you want love in your life? Do you want joy? Do you want peace? Do you want patience? Do you want kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Do you want all these things? Well, they are fruits of the Spirit. And their perfect expression will come to you in Jesus Christ who came and lived and he, he lived out all of these things perfectly, earning the righteousness that you and I need. And then he died on the cross paying the penalty for when you and I are not these things. And because of that, when we place our full faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we will be saved. And he'll begin to change us from the inside out with those things. And he proved that his salvation is sufficient because he rose from the dead. If there was anything else that was required for you to be saved, then Jesus Christ would still be dead today but he's not dead. He rose from the grave. And what that proves is that he is enough, that he is the all-sufficient source of our salvation, that God is satisfied with what he did. And when we are in Christ, he is satisfied with you and me. He looks upon him and he pardons us when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that, I would ask you to please consider the claims of Christ. I'll be here after service if you want to talk. Brother Stephan, Brother Roy, Brother Art, um, several others of our, of our faithful ladies and men are here that can explain the gospel to you faithfully. Please seek out someone. Ask whatever questions you have. And Christian, let's cultivate these things both in our lives and in our church. Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths. We thank you for your gracious, loving way that you work with us. You, you are growing us to be more like Jesus Christ every single day. Lord, I pray if there's one here this morning that doesn't know Christ, I know these things are not realities in their life. Lord, I pray that they have looked at them and they've heard their descriptions and they thought, man, these are things that I've, I need. These are th- this is what I've been looking for and I've been looking in all the wrong places for them. Lord, may they finally come to the right source this morning, which is only Jesus Christ in the gospel. So Lord, let them come. Bring them to yourself. It is in your name we pray. Let's stand up and let's sing this song together.